Well, good morning. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. Now, we are blessed as American citizens to live in a country where certain rights are, are enshrined in the founding documents of our nation. That's a great blessing. The, the Declaration of Independence, which the Founding Fathers wrote to declare their independence from the British Empire, is built on the premise that there are certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, the first ten amendments of the Constitution are referred to as the Bill of Rights, and they guarantee certain freedoms that we cherish, like freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, uh, the right to bear arms, the right to a trial by jury of your peers, right, and, and others. Um, we're grateful for those things, and, and the very fabric of our society as Americans really centers on the value that we place on our rights on those things that we are morally or legally entitled to, on the, on the freedoms provided and protected for us in the legal documents of our country's founding. Um, and these rights are, are good things, are they not? They are great blessings. There are billions of people in the world who do not have the same freedoms that we do. There are billions of people in the world who really do not have any freedoms protected by law at all. And so we are extremely blessed to have the rights and freedoms that we do. Now, given that those things are so precious to us, let me ask you a hypothetical question. Would you be willing to give up your constitutionally granted rights for the sake of the gospel? Right? If, God, if God said to you, I know that the law gives you the right to bear arms, or the law gives you right, the right to vote as an American citizen, but if you give that up, I will be able to do incredible things, right? I will do wonderful things as the gospel spreads. And I'll say many people, if, if you set this right, this is hypothetical, right? This wouldn't, you know, God wouldn't come to us and say this, but would you be willing to give up your constitutionally granted rights for the sake of the gospel? If such a situation arose, would you be willing to set those things aside for the sake of others? That's a difficult question to answer. That's a difficult question to answer. Our, our rights are legitimately and validly important to us. But in this morning's text, we see Jesus doing this very thing as tax collectors approach him. Because of the freedom he has as God's son, Jesus is willing to lay aside his own rights, his own claims, his own freedoms, to ensure that there are no needless obstacles between him and those he came to save. Um, let's read our text, verses 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord and our God, we come to your word. We come to the Holy Scriptures this morning, desiring to hear what you have to say. And Father, this portion of Matthew's gospel is here because you have inspired it to be here. Because it is necessary for us to hear. 
And our Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear the teaching of Jesus, as we look at this interaction between Jesus and Peter and these tax collectors. And Father, that you would help us to consider how Jesus would have us live in following his example. My Lord, I pray for your, your help, your guidance, for your spirit to bless the preaching of your word this morning. For Lord, I am not sufficient for any of these things. But you, Holy Spirit, you transform hearts. You bless the word as we hear it and help us to receive it. And so, oh God, I pray you would do so this morning. Help me to be useful for your glory and the good of your people. I ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. We see three major events in this text this morning. The first in verses 24 through 25, we see the temple tax requested. Verses 25 and 26, we see the sons of the king exempted. And finally, in verse 27, an offense freely avoided. Now, Jesus and his disciples, we saw last week, are beginning to travel. They're going south from Caesarea Philippi, down into Galilee, and, and now they have stopped in the village of Capernaum, which is where most of the early chapters of Matthew's gospel took place. And they're making their way south to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they've stopped for a time in this village, which is where Jesus very likely had a house and where Peter lived as well. And, and once they're there, we see in verse 24, once they arrive in Capernaum, they are approached by collectors of the two drachma tax. Now, what is that all about? What's the two drachma tax? We, of course, do not pay that, so we're not familiar with it. The, the two drachma tax was a religious tax that was collected every year during the month before Passover. And the purpose of this tax was to raise funds to maintain the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. This wasn't a Roman tax. These weren't Roman tax collectors. This was a Jewish tax, really a religious tax. And they would go all throughout the Roman Empire and collect this two drachma tax from every Jewish male. Now, um, this tax had been around for 150, 200 years maybe before Jesus' time. But interestingly, it wasn't a compulsory tax. You weren't going to be punished if you didn't pay the tax. There wasn't a penalty if you, if you didn't pay it. But everybody, just about, did pay this tax. Um, and if you didn't, there probably would be some kind of social stigma, right? That guy's something wrong with him. He's not paying the tax to keep up our temple. He may not be a faithful, loyal Jew. Now, some Jewish religious groups who were opposed to the temple, they, they didn't pay it. Some groups only paid it once in their lifetime. But these groups were outliers, and they were uh, looked at as, as radicals, really. Most normal Jews paid this tax without a second thought. Now, a drachma is a day's wage. That's how much you would earn in a day uh, as a common person. And so a two drachma tax is not an exorbitant amount of money, but it was significant, several hundred dollars in today's currency. And this tax was so uh, prolific in what it collected that the temple aristocracy, they had so much money they didn't know what to do with it. And so they would just put these extravagant decorations on the temple like this giant golden vine. They had so much money. Now, the scriptural basis that these religious leaders appealed to is found in Exodus chapter 30. Turn there briefly with me, and, and we'll, we'll see uh, where they got this idea from. Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. Exodus chapter 30, 11 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life 
to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 garaz, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Uh, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, for the tabernacle, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Um, now there's a lot in there we're not going to talk about this morning, but this is the passage that the temple leaders looked at and said, well, we should do the same thing to raise money for the temple. Now, uh, a shekel here was the equivalent to two drachmas, right? So we see the, the currency conversion, it's all lining up here. But the tax in Exodus was originally for a census. That's the occasion of it. When, when a census was taken of the people of Israel, when they were numbered, that's when this tax would be taken. Now, in Israel's time, the only time a census would be taken was in a time of war. God did not want the people taking censuses all the time. Because what would that mean? If you're counting your army, you're seeing how much military strength you have, right? If you're counting all the males in Israel, you're seeing how big of an army, how powerful you're going to be. And you're trusting in your army instead of in the Lord. And that was a big problem. And so the Lord established some of these parameters one, to discourage the people from taking all of these censuses because you got to pay all this money if you're going to do this. Uh, and to provide a way for them to safely take a census if need be. But nowhere is the tax in Exodus to be taken annually and nowhere is it intended to enrich the temple treasury. That wasn't the purpose. Really, the two drachma tax in Jesus' day was nothing more than a Jewish custom. That's going to be really, really important. It is nothing more than a Jewish custom. It's not a divine command. Uh, it's not part of God's law. Exodus is. But to base a customary tax off of Exodus is not something God ever commanded. It's a Jewish custom. And again, this is going to be very significant when we see Jesus uh, dealing with this. And so these tax collectors, they approach Peter specifically, probably because he was the homeowner right, of the house they're staying in. That's, that's more than likely the case. And they ask, is your teacher going to pay the tax? Does he not, does he not pay this two drachma tax? Is he not going to help support the temple? There's a little bit of disagreement about the nature of this question. Is this a, an implied accusation against Jesus? Revealing that they've, they've identified Jesus. He's one of those radicals. He's not going to pay the taxes. That's what's implied here. Is it a, a question that stems from their suspicion that Jesus might be like these other radical groups, but they're not sure? Or is it maybe a genuine question? Wondering, well, maybe Jesus does pay the tax. Let's find out. It's really impossible to say, and it makes little difference at the end of the day. The important thing is they're asking Peter, does your master pay this tax? Is he going to pay it? And look what Peter does. Peter immediately answers, yes. He immediately answers, yes. Now, it seems that Peter maybe is defending his teacher here. Yeah, my teacher does pay the tax. He's a faithful and loyal Jew. I don't want you throwing any shade his direction. He does pay this tax. But the problem is that Peter doesn't think before he speaks. Peter doesn't think before he speaks. He, he doesn't stop to consider whether or not Jesus would, in fact, pay this temple tax. He just says, yep, he'd pay it. Now, Peter's lived with this tax his whole life. This is just the world he's grown up in, right? Peter just assumes faithful Jews pay the tax. 
well, I know my, my, my rabbi is a faithful Jew, so yeah, of course he pays the tax, right? He's probably not even thinking that far ahead. He just assumes, yes. And in answering so quickly, Peter actually commits Jesus to have to pay this tax now without speaking with him first. He's inadvertently committed Jesus to have to pay this tax. And we can relate to Peter, of course. How many of us have made such a similar mistake of speaking rashly without thinking or making promises that are, are beyond our authority? And when Peter goes back inside, Jesus anticipates him. Jesus um, speaks to him first. There's almost this idea that, that maybe he stops Peter right inside the door. And he takes advantage of this as a teaching moment to reveal to Peter more of the nature of his kingdom. And that brings us to our second point. The sons of the king exempted, 25 and 26. Jesus knows very well what's happened outside, and he asks Peter several questions, as he often does. And the first question Peter is asked is, what do you think, Peter? What do you think, Peter? Of course, Peter hadn't thought. Right? That's the problem. Peter hadn't thought. He had simply assumed that based on this custom, Jesus would do this. He, he hadn't stopped to think about whether or not Jesus would pay the tax. He hadn't stopped to consider how what Jesus had taught and shown them so far might affect the answer to this question of the tax. Peter hadn't thought at all. And so Jesus is now pointing that out and saying, hey, Peter, what do you think? Let's actually think about this for a second. And many times we're like Peter, aren't we? We, we answer, we act according to our own opinions, thoughts, customs, uh, what we feel to be right without attempting to think clearly or biblically about it. Right? Sometimes we're Peter and we just give a snap answer, but we don't actually think, what, is this a biblical way to view this? Right? We, we do this at times. We must, of course, think biblically. Right? That's what we must do instead of assuming or resting on our opinions. Uh, Jesus desires us and Peter to think in light of divine revelation, to think biblically, uh, so to speak. And so he's challenging Peter, think about this. What do you think? And he asked Peter another question after that. From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From whom do the kings of earth take toll or tax? Now Jesus uh, takes it as a given that human rulers will require revenue of their subjects. All right, taxation has been around for thousands and thousands of years. Right? Um, sometimes this revenue comes through direct taxation. Sometimes it's more passive like tolls or customs. Right? Um, we pay our taxes at the end of the year, and then sometimes we just pay tax when we buy gas right? or we buy products. Right? There's all different ways that we are taxed. Um, it's a reality that people everywhere, Peter 2,000 years ago, us today, we're familiar with it. Right? And in light of this, the third question Jesus asks is, do these kings collect their taxes from their sons or from others? Right? Where do these kings get their money? Who are they going after for this revenue, their sons or from others? Now, think about this for a minute. Um, would a king tax his children? Probably not. Probably not. Right? Would he tax the prince or princess? Probably not. He's probably not going to tax his mother or his sister. No, the king is going to tax his subjects, those who are outside of his family. He's taxing those, you know, the peasants, right, the middle class, right? He's taxing the people that are not his family. And as we see in verse 26, Peter comes to the same conclusion. The kings of the earth tax others, not their family, not their sons, but others. And then Jesus concludes 
and declares that therefore the sons of the king are free. The sons of the king are free. The sons of the king are exempt from paying. They're exempt from these expectations. After all, they're direct recipients of the tax money, right? They're actually receiving the tax money. Uh, here's basically right what Jesus is saying. Let's break it down a little bit. One, there are those who are not obligated to pay the king's tax in this parable. They're free. They're free from that. And those free ones are the sons of the king, those in familial relation to him. Now, God, of course... That's okay. That's all right. No, it's all good. Uh, God, of course, is the king of the temple, right? God is the king of the temple here in the parable, uh, though, of course, we know he never required such a tax. And Jesus is the son of God, the king, and is the Messiah and the second person of the Trinity, right? He is the son in the parable. And therefore, Jesus is free from paying this tax. It's a custom, right? It's a customary thing. Jesus is free from it, even if God did require it. Right? Jesus would need to fulfill it as far as righteousness goes for our sake, but he wouldn't be under the same obligation. So Peter, it seems, answered this question of the tax collectors a little too quickly. He didn't think about it. And remember, this tax was, was you know, intended to maintain a building that God didn't dwell in anymore. God didn't dwell in the temple since Ezekiel left. He's gone. And what's more, Jesus as the Son of God would actually be the worthy recipient of worship in his divine nature. And he's actually who should be worshipped rather than a subject having to pay to facilitate worship in the temple. Right? Remember, this is a human custom. It's not a divine law. It's a custom. Jesus doesn't have to pay it. This wasn't a law he needed to fulfill for your sake or mine in obedience. And it wasn't really a sign of genuine Jewish piety. It was just a custom. So Jesus is free. Okay, okay, that's, that's good for Jesus, but what about us? Well, notice that the word son is plural. Son. I think that's significant. Now, certainly Jesus as the Son of God is exempt from this tax, but there seems to be an implication that his disciples are also free from having to pay this tax as well, and that they are considered sons here. We'll see this confirmed in the next verse, 27. But this is confirmed by what the New Testament says elsewhere. Christians have a different status before the God of heaven than unbelievers do. Christians are not subjects, but sons. Now, Jesus is the natural son, but believers are adopted sons. And Romans chapter 8 speaks of how we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You hear that there. Believers are sons. They are adopted. They are co-inheritors with Christ. John, who is here in the house listening to this conversation in Capernaum, writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the glorious reality, brothers and sisters. Through faith in Christ, we are united with Him. And in our union with Him, we are adopted and given full rights and privileges as legitimate children of God, genuine sons of the Father, of the King. And as a result of this, the Bible speaks of how we now get to share in the inheritance and claim of the Son. As we read it a minute ago in Romans 8. And listen to how Peter 
The very one Jesus is talking to expands on this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 and 4. He says, according to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You get to share in the inheritance that God has given to Jesus Christ through adoption as sons. That's not a gender-excluding word, but sons were the ones who received the inheritance in the ancient world. You get to participate in that as a co-inheritor with Christ, having equal privileges with Him. Think about that for a minute. Right, we go through life thinking about, oh, you know, I'm, my house isn't good enough, and I don't like my job very much, and I have all these things, and I wish I had more. And, and we, we don't stop to think of all that we've received in Christ, of the inheritance that has been given to us and promised to us. Have we received all of it now? No, it's being kept in heaven for us. But will we receive it? By God's grace, we will. Think of how your life would change if you had a $10 million inheritance weighted waiting for you, promised to you. You would think about that a lot, wouldn't you? You'd be thinking about all the, all the things you would do with it, right? Why do we not think of the inheritance God has promised us in Christ the same way? Those blessings are far greater, brothers and sisters. And so it's not only Jesus, the Son of God, who's exempt from this custom here, but all who are found in Him, all of His people who are adopted and made co-inheritors with Him, we get to share in all that he has. We get to call the same God Father. This means, I think, that Jesus' disciples are also free from needing to pay this tax. Right? Christians are, are, are ultimately free from obligation to human customs. Right? We're free from those things. Our citizenship is, is in a, a heavenly kingdom, not primarily an earthly one anymore. And it's for this reason that what we see in verse 27 might be Surprising. Since we are free from these customs and we don't have to do these things, what we see next raises some questions in verse 27. And Jesus says, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, if, if Jesus and Peter were... Americans, perhaps, we might expect them to go back to those tax collectors and say, you cannot infringe on our freedoms. We don't have to pay this tax because it's a custom. We don't need to follow any of your customs. We are sons of the king. We have rights. And it's true. Those things would be true. Jesus does have the right to refuse to pay the tax. And here's where things go a little differently than what we might expect. Right? Jesus has a greater concern here than his rights and freedoms. Jesus has a greater concern here than his rights and freedoms. Look at what he says in verse 27 at the very beginning. However, not to give offense to them. Not to give offense to them. What is Jesus more concerned about than his rights as the son of the king and his freedoms? He is more concerned about causing needless offense to the tax collectors. He's more concerned about causing needless offense to others who might see this custom as very important. 
This word offense in the Greek, it's the same as stumbling block, right? We use that term in, in Christianese sometimes, right? It's a biblical term. That's what this is talking about. Something placed in the way of another person, like an offense. Now, Jesus might be concerned about causing offense to the tax collectors because Peter's committed him to the tax and he doesn't want to um, cause any problems by making Peter a liar. It could be that he doesn't want to violate the cultural sensitivities of his Jewish countrymen. But either way, the point is that Jesus is concerned about causing needless offense. He doesn't want to put a stumbling block in the way of these Jewish tax collectors. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because he had no problem causing offense to the Pharisees in earlier chapters, did he? He had no problem at all. He didn't care what they thought. Why? Why is there a difference here? Well, the Pharisees, in their teaching, are undercutting Scripture. They're actually opposing Scripture, and they're opposing Jesus himself. Uh, these tax collectors are simply carrying out a Jewish custom. It's very different. Not all customs are opposed to the gospel. And Jesus approaches the issue of human custom very differently than he does the Pharisees for a very specific reason. Now, there are, there are all manner of human customs around the world, a countless traditions of culture. Right? We have many in America. In Arabic countries, for example, the, the sole of the foot is considered a highly, um, a highly dirty and offensive part of the body. You would never show the sole of your foot to somebody. You'd never expose that to them. That would be extremely, extremely offensive. Now, is it violating God's law to show somebody the, the bottom of your foot? No, God doesn't prohibit that in Scripture. Is that a universal moral law like murder or adultery? No. It doesn't break one of the Ten Commandments to show your foot to somebody, uh, and you're technically free from having to right, follow this custom. It's not, there's, not, there's not a law that says you must do it. right? If you're not a citizen of that country, it's not you know, a, a right that um, is infringed on on your part. Nobody can make you keep your feet covered. It's a custom. But if you were a missionary going to the Middle East to evangelize Arabic people, what would the effect be of ignoring this custom? Right? What would be the effect if you're trying to tell somebody about Jesus and in the conversation you keep showing them the bottom of your foot? That might be a problem, right? Uh, what would be the result of insisting on your right to show your foot? in an Arabic social setting, right? There's the missionary, and all he wants to do is just show us the bottom of his feet. What's wrong with that guy? Do you think that's going to cause hindrance to the gospel? Yes, it is. Now, in America, it wouldn't matter at all, right? You could be at the beach talking to somebody about Jesus, and your, your feet are there. It's no big deal. But if you're in other countries, Iran or Afghanistan or, or, or many other in the, in the Middle East, right? That's going to hinder the progress of the gospel at a human level. People are going to associate the gospel with a needless offense. The Apostle Paul took this into account during his own ministry, and he reveals how the, the heart of what Jesus is doing here is found in his own approach. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We can uh, turn there briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we see what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 19 through 23, Paul, of course, went to the Jews and he went to the Gentiles. So he went to all different kinds of people with the gospel. And here's what he said, For though I am free from all, 
Paul recognizes his freedoms. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Now notice the first thing Paul says, I am free from all. He had complete freedom in Christ. He was conscious of that. He recognized, I'm not bound to any of these human customs or tradition. Right? I, I don't have to abstain from certain foods anymore. I don't have to do those things anymore. But what does he say? I'm willing to participate in those customs in order to win more to Christ in order to be more acceptable and less offensive to them, not in the content of what he preached, but in the non-essential things. He was willing to set aside his freedoms freely for the greater purpose of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean Paul's going to participate in sinful customs, right? And in history, it's been a custom to sacrifice human beings on an altar, right? Okay, so we have some problems there. In other places, it's customary to get drunk during various religious holidays, right? Well, okay, yeah, we shouldn't participate in sinful customs. But as far as Paul says, right, I will participate in whatever customs I can to win more to Christ. And who's Paul's example? Is it, is it none other than Jesus? Is it none other than him? Jesus is more concerned about causing a needless offense based on custom than he is concerned about asserting his own rights and freedoms. He's willing to give these things up in the case of these tax collectors in order to be above reproach regarding a single, simple, custom of men, in order that any rejection of him on their part wouldn't be in response to anything but his person, work, and message. That these tax collectors wouldn't be able to say, yeah, that Jesus, he's, he's horrible. He's a false teacher, blah, 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 blah. Because he didn't pay the tax, right? Jesus will not give them that reason. They're going to reject him. Let it be because he claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God who will die for the sins of the world. And may they not reject him for any other reason. That's how Jesus is approaching this issue of customs here. Now, now we have to ask ourselves, where does our greater concern lie? In the progress of the gospel or our own freedoms and rights? Now, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to step on any toes here, right? It's hard to talk about rights without, you know, uh, getting a little, uh, little dicey. But bear with me for a moment, right? So, Here's an example, right? Just what I saw the other day. So we are granted the freedom of speech in America. Um, that is a good thing. Driving down the highway the other day, and there's this this car. I don't recognize it, so I don't think it's anybody here. Uh, but I, I'm driving. I see this car with a big cross on one side of the the rear windshield, and on the other side is a very offensive anti-Biden political slogan. I'm not going to say it here. Well, do you have the legal freedom of speech to put a cross? and uh, extremely derogatory slogan on your rear windshield? You sure do. The law protects that. But do you think that's going to advance or hinder the gospel? That's going to hinder the gospel, right? Why let political outrage be associated with the gospel? That's going to give needless offense. Freedom of speech, in this case, is a right that should be set aside 
for the sake of the gospel, that there is not a needless, unnecessary offense. Now, we can tend to think about our rights first and the gospel second, or even putting them on equal ground. But that's not what Jesus does here. That's not what Paul does. We should treat our rights as an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Paul does that in the book of Acts. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. I want to go see Caesar. And so he appeals to his rights so that the gospel may be advanced. And yet at other times, he puts them aside so that the gospel may be advanced. The point is, right, the advancement of the gospel is the greatest good that we can pursue here. And so Jesus willingly pays this tax. He says, I don't want to put an unnecessary offense in front of them. I'm going to lay aside my own right to refuse this, and we're going to pay the tax. Really, this is an act of love towards the tax collectors, isn't it? But the way Jesus pays it is rather unique. He tells Peter, go to the Sea of Galilee, cast out a line and catch a fish. Um, I love this part of the passage. Jesus promises Peter that the first fish he catches will have a shekel in its mouth. A shekel is the equivalent of, of four drachmas. Enough to pay the tax for Jesus and Peter. Now, this is a pretty unexpected way to pay this tax, right? I wish I could pay my taxes with fishing, you know. Um, but this reels a few important things, right? One, it reveals Jesus has knowledge beyond that of a mere man, right? You and I could not make this prediction with any degree of certainty, right? People have caught fish with other fish in their mouths or fishing lures in their mouth. I don't know of anybody who's caught a fish with money in its mouth. We don't have any say in the providence of God, but Jesus clearly knows what will happen. He knows that this fish perhaps will swallow a shekel, right, and then go right to Peter's bait. Or, or perhaps Jesus is even, by his creative power, putting that shekel in the fish's mouth. Either way, Jesus has abilities beyond that of a normal human being. And it also reveals, I think, that Jesus and Peter are both considered as free sons. Jesus provides for himself and for Peter. Peter's included in this here. Peter's not left in a different category. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this drachma from the fish. You go figure something else out. No, Jesus pays for Peter too. Peter's a free son, and, and, and you and I, those who believe in Christ, we are free sons. And it's interesting too, I think, that, that Jesus doesn't pay out of his own pocket. He doesn't pay out of the treasury of the disciples. Instead, he uses creation to pay this tax. Right? He maintains his freedom and uses what already belongs to him, which is all things, and uses his creation to pay for Peter too. Right? All things are at our Lord's disposal. All things. And he uses them for his purposes and for our good. And the good here is to avoid causing needless offense that would interfere with Jesus' messianic mission to the Jewish people. To the Jewish people. A friend, are there areas where you're more committed to upholding your customs or your, your rights than the gospel? And, 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 and we don't even have to think about legal rights here. We can think about, I have a right to be angry about this. Or I have the right to do this or to do this because this person did this to me or because I had this happen to me and I have a, I have a right to be mad right now, for example. Well, it's not a legally protected right per se, but is that right to feel angry that, that we might think we have in a in a difficult situation, something that can hinder the progress of the gospel, it, it certainly can. Now, there's, there's not always conflict between our rights and the gospel, praise God. But is it possible that in some areas, we value our rights more than we value the gospel, practically speaking? 
practically speaking? Are, are, are there things that we are more committed to, whether it be our, our personal uh, felt rights or our legally protected rights, that we're more committed to those things in humble, voluntary sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? And I'm not being very specific here for a reason, right? Because I, I can't, right? I don't, I don't know the heart of each one of us regarding these things, right? But it's simply a question to consider. Simply a question to consider. J.C. Ryle, a strong defender of the gospel in England, uh, reflects on these verses. And he says, They teach us plainly that there are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and submit to requirements which they may not thoroughly approve rather than give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ. Um, God's rights we ought never to give up, but we may sometimes safely give up our own. It may sound very fine and seem very heroic to always be standing uh, tenaciously for our rights, but it may be well doubted with such a passage as this, whether such tenacity is always wise and shows the mind of Christ. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. And we have to ask, are we willing to lay aside our own rights and claims for the sake of the gospel? If such an occasion were to arise, are we prepared to do so? Are we prepared to do so? Right? And we can do that rejoicing in our freedoms, rejoicing in our rights, being thankful for the, the freedoms we enjoy as Americans. But we also must remember that there may be times where it is wiser to hold a little less tightly to those things in certain cases that the gospel may advance. Just as our Lord did with these tax collectors. The gospel is eternal. Human customs and rights are not. And so our value of the gospel is certainly uh, probably the most valuable thing we could treasure. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you this morning. And Father, we see the example of Christ who was willing to lay aside some of his own freedoms and, and claims and rights and who was willing to do so out of love for those that he came to save and preach the gospel to. And Father, this passage and what we read in Scripture at times of being willing to set aside our own freedoms and rights for the sake of the gospel, Lord, it, it rubs us wrong. And Lord, our, our flesh bucks against it, Lord. But I ask that you would help us to consider, Lord, such things. Lord, that you would help us to prize the gospel so much that you would help us to love others so much that we may be in our freedom willing to set aside some of those things that the gospel may advance. And Father, we know the gospel is uh, your power for salvation, that we don't make it less effective by our, um, by our, our, our foolishness at times. But Father, we do want to be effective for you. And Father, we do not want to be found placing unnecessary offense in front of the lost. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider that there are things that we prize more than the gospel. And, Lord, that you would help us to lay those things aside when necessary, that Christ might be exalted and proclaimed. And we ask this in his name. Amen.